Hello everyone. Social media and depression. One, a source of communication, joy and entertainment, supposedly. The other, a highly complex condition affecting mood, general well-being, and one that leads to feelings of isolation. So how could these two things possibly be related? Well, ever since the emergence of social media back in sort of the early 2000s, questions have been raised about the potentially harmful effects it's having on mental health, particularly in adolescence. In this extended podcast, I plan to discuss why people would use social media and which aspects of it have been a cause for concern. I'd also like to take this opportunity to thank Zoe B, a Year 13 student at my school, for carrying out the research and providing the content for this podcast. So social media is defined as forms of electric, or electronic rather, communication such as websites for social networking and microblogging, through which users create online communities to share information, ideas, personal messages and other content such as videos. There's been a considerable rise in the rate of social media use, particularly in recent years, with an estimated 2.65 billion people reported to be using social media worldwide in 2018, a number projected to increase to almost 3.1 billion by 2021. Well, that's according to research carried out by Clement in 2018. A relatively new large-scale study conducted by the Pew Research Centre suggested that 95% of teens between the age of 13 and 17 own their own smartphone or have access to one. However, they experience mixed feelings about that phone and particularly social media and how it's affecting them. Incidentally, we have seen a sharp increase in depression rates amongst teenagers as between 2009 and 2017, so we're just talking a period of about eight years here or so, rates of depression among teenagers aged 14 to 17 were seen to increase by more than 60%, one particular study published in the Journal of Abnormal Psychology found. Figures like these ignite the debate and concerns over the use and role that social media is playing here, but the jury is still out as to whether social media is more harmful than beneficial overall. The questions as to whether social media makes us happy or unhappy, or or more generally whether it's good or bad for us, are now entirely standard conversations for people all around the world to be having. And it's important to discover and understand any potential risks that social media bears and ensure that these are managed accordingly. So why do people use social media? It's addictive precisely because it gives us something which the real world, you could argue, lacks. It gives us immediacy, direction, if you like, a sense of clarity and value as an individual. And again, that's according to the respected author David Ameland. It's thought that around 70% of adolescents across the world use social media multiple times each day. In some cases, this overly excessive use of social media is totally unintentional and it can result from something called phantom vibration syndrome. It sounds odd but it's an actual term used by psychologists who believe that phantom vibration syndrome or false ringing if you like is an unusual activity that depicts our deep connection with our phone. 
According to Michelle Druin, professor at the Indiana University, Purdue, Purdue University rather, in Indiana, uh, she found that 89% of undergraduates in her extensive study had experienced these phantom vibrations about every two weeks on average, although only 1 in 11 actually classified them as bothersome. This may represent a manifestation of the anxiety that cell phones elicit in those who are obsessed with checking in on their social media and messages. Now often, there are two underlying motivations behind the use of social media. These being a need to belong and to fit in, and a need for, and it sounds a really odd turn of phrase, self-presentation. Interestingly, Zoe, who I mentioned at the start of this podcast, conducted her own small-scale survey with a group of 50 teenage girls aged between 17 to 18. It's only a small cohort, and they were asked about their reasons for using social media. And what she found was that 75% of them said they use it to stay in touch with friends and to just simply avoid missing out on things happening in other people's lives. That provided sufficient reasoning for them to not want to delete any of their accounts at all. 78% of those who took part claimed to enjoy using social media, but were very much aware that it was, and I quote, a waste of their time. This actually reminds me of a quote from Mark Merrin, a stand-up comedian and author, and he said, and you might have heard it, he says, it amazes me that we're all on Twitter and Facebook. By we, I mean adults. We're adults, right? But emotionally, we're a culture of seven-year-olds. Have you ever had that moment when you were updating your status and you realise that every status update is just a variation on a single request? Would someone please acknowledge me? Okay, so we'll, we'll, we'll come back to social media in just a few moments. But for now, I think we need to look in more detail about depression so that we can effectively link the two. The scientific definition of depression is given as a common and seri- I mean, that in itself is troubling, common. It's a common and serious medical illness that negatively affects how you feel, the way you think, and how you act. Scientists suggest that low levels of serotonin are responsible for depression, as serotonin is the neurotransmitter responsible for feelings of elation and happiness. Whether these low levels are the result of underproduction of the neurotransmitter, or nerve cells being unable to respond appropriately to the serotonin after it's been synthesized. Now, in a separate podcast, I'll go into more detail about the underlying biochemistry and how acute tryptophan depletion, or ATD, links to low serotonin levels. But but in this podcast, I think the key point I want to raise here is that there, there are numerous factors influencing just how vulnerable different individuals are to becoming depressed. I mean, these range from the biological factors, so things like genes, hormones, brain biochemistry, to environmental factors, which may be unavoidable and far more complex to treat. It's unsurprising, therefore, that every year, about 5 to 8% of the adult population is depressed. And that's according to work carried out by Samantha Olson in 2014. Vulnerability to depression is often seen to be hereditary. While hormonal changes, especially for teenagers going through puberty, are inevitable, they are sometimes closely related to depression. The changes in hormone production or functioning could lead to the onset of depressive states. 
There's also a range of psychological factors associated with depression. These being prolonged negative thinking, failure, stress. The reciprocal relationship between depression and cognition may form the basis of a vicious cycle which will perpetuate and intensify depression. In simple terms, depression is often seen as a cycle of negativity, if you like, as persistent negative thinking leads to depression, while depression in turn increases the probability of negative thoughts occurring. Stress is often closely linked to depression for relatively uncomplicated reasons, in that it can have direct effects on mood, and early initial symptoms of lower mood can actually include things like irritability, sleep disruption and cognitive changes such as impaired concentration. In order to suitably assess the extent to which social media has led to an increase in depression rates among teenagers, it's necessary to acknowledge and understand both the ways in which social media can harm mental health but also benefit it. So the suggestion that social media has in fact led to an increase in depression will in this podcast be broken down into three core arguments. The first being the negative effects of blue light from our phones, which has the potential of disrupting sleep patterns for the user. The second argument is the impact of sedentary behaviour on mental health. When I talk about sedentary behaviour, I'm talking about a lack of physical activity, if you like, and that's resulting from the use of social media. And the final argument relates to the constant vulnerability that adolescents have to cyberbullying, which we all know can have huge detrimental consequences. Now, it goes without saying that there are, of course, counter arguments to what I've just said, rejecting the whole hypothesis that social media is a more harmful than beneficial tool. The first being the potential, and I use this term very carefully, illusion of rising depression rates amongst teenagers as a result of social media because some claim that it actually brings out more awareness and understanding of mental health and depression in particular. Social media is seen as a remarkable way for teenagers to socialise and meet new people, allowing them to build a supportive sense of community. In fact, on the 22nd of October this year, the results of an eight-year study were published in the journal Computers of Human Behaviour and reported on science news websites such as Science Daily. And the headline read, Overall time on social media is not related to teen anxiety and depression. Now you might think, okay, well, I could stop the podcast right there. This confirms it. But for every article and story that I find refuting the link between the two, I could find another confirming it. There are a lot of contradictory stories out there. Now if you've listened to the podcast I've made, uh, last year about fake medical news, you'll appreciate the extent of misinformation that gets put into the public domain. So let's discuss the first of the three core issues at the heart of this podcast. Does exposure to blue light ultimately lead to depression or encourage it? Well, the light emitted from all mobile devices, from phones, tablets, TVs, computers, or any device with LED lighting is perceived to be incredibly harmful in ways such as, well, leading to things like blindness. Insomnia has even been linked in some regards to cancer. It's difficult to comprehend just how harmful it actually is on the body. However, considering it's found in almost all mobile devices on the market, 
it really is something that we need to be investigating thoroughly. There is clear evidence that blue light in our phones does have profound effects on our sleeping patterns. For example, Wright and his team found that a group of people who had no exposure to blue light during a week away camping had a circadian rhythm which was synchronised with the natural rise and fall of the sun. And this natural body clock is in fact very unnatural in today's day and age because of the overexposure that the majority of the population experiences to blue light. Following the revelation, apologies, that blue light has an effect on our sleep, more studies have been carried out in order to determine what it is that keeps us awake at night after using mobile devices. Participants in Wright's study, aged between 17 and 42, were asked to wear short wavelength blocking glasses three hours before bedtime, while continuing to use mobile phones, as they would normally have done for about a period of two weeks. The research results were shocking, as participants had a 58% increase in melatonin levels in their body following the use of the short wavelength glasses. The production of melatonin is influenced by a number of things, most importantly being the level of light that the retina of the eye is exposed to. Now this is why during the day melatonin levels in humans are low and at night they should naturally be high. The body produces melatonin through special photoreceptor cells in the retina which sends signals about the light status to the suprachiasmatic nucleus, or the SEN, in the hypothalamus of the brain. And these signals get then transmitted to the pineal gland. Now, melatonin generation by the pineal gland peaks during the nighttime hours and it induces physiological changes that promote sleep, such as a decreased body temperature and respiration rate. So in essence, what this team this research team found whether the participants, when they weren't exposed to the blue light, were able to produce more melatonin. And that's a good thing. Exposure to blue light ultimately causes a decrease in the amount of melatonin that one is producing. So an underproduction of melatonin and that resultant lack of sleep that can come from that can have a profound impact on one's mental health, in particular that of teenagers, as adolescents need perhaps the most sleep out of all age groups, you could argue. Now it shouldn't be news to anyone that sleep deprivation can affect your psychological state and mental health. Insomnia and depression often go hand in hand. Although just 15% of people with depression sleep too much, as many as 80% have trouble falling asleep or staying asleep. Those who report a history of insomnia are supposedly four times more likely to develop major depression later in life. The link between sleep and depression occurs through the serotonergic system, which is active during the periods where you're awake and inactive during sleep. Serotonin release is very much inhibited during slow wave and REM sleep. Slow wave sleep essentially being the deepest stage of our sleep while REM sleep is the phase of our sleep cycle in which dreams occur. Exposure to blue light does seem to negatively affect our sleep. So is that conclusive evidence that our extensive use of mobile phones and social media is leading to depressive states? 
Well, as I said before, it's certainly worth our attention. What are the impacts of sedentary behaviour on mental health? So let's move to our second argument. So for the majority of our evolutionary history, humans lived a sort of hunter-gatherer existence, if you like, which required high levels of physical activity to acquire food and water, obtain shelter and avoid predators. Over time, advances in technology and agriculture gradually reduced the energy expenditure required to fulfil these survival needs. Sedentary behaviours are defined as activities that involve sitting or lying down and are characterised by a low metabolic equivalent total, or MET, energy expenditure. Unfortunately, they are becoming one of the most popular activities, I guess you could say, in most of our lives, despite many people being entirely unaware of it. Sedentary activity is greatly encouraged by the existence of social media, especially in the lives of adolescents. If you're sitting typing and doing not a great deal else, then is it any wonder that rates of obesity, diabetes and heart disease are on the rise? Our physical health has never been more at risk, and our mental health coincides with that. There's been a great deal of research carried out on this very issue, uh, one being a study published by The Lancet, based on the rates of rising childhood and adolescent obesity. So they found that obesity rates had risen drastically since 1975, where they were measured at less than 1%, which is equivalent to just 5 million girls and about 6 million boys. By 2016, the rates of obesity had skyrocketed to 6% in girls, which accounts for 50 million girls, and 8% in boys, which is around 74 million young boys. I want to mention a piece of research carried out by the It's Your Move community-based obesity prevention scheme. They collected responses from about 3, 000, just over 3,000 adolescent students, 56% of which were boys aged between 11 and 18, in Australia in order to assess the link between physical activity and health-related quality of life, or HR-QUAL, I guess you could call it. In simple terms, the results of this research found that students with higher physical activity during the school day had significantly higher HR qual scores, higher um, health-related quality of life scores. Furthermore, supporting this research is a study carried out by Sanchez Villagas in 2008, who conducted a longitudinal study examining the relationship between combined self-reported TV viewing and computer use and risk of a mental disorder such as depression. The study found that participants with the highest levels of sedentary habits at baseline were 31% more likely to be at risk of a mental disorder, so depression, bipolar, anxiety or stress, at follow-up than those who had reported low levels of sedentary behaviour at the baseline. The link between lack of exercise, plausibly as a result of social media use, is a very valid explanation for a rise in depression rates amongst teenagers, as there is scientific evidence verifying the psychological benefits of exercise. It's known to increase levels of endorphins, which are natural opiates, therefore responsible for increasing feelings of well-being and euphoria. Exercise is also thought to be responsible for regulating norepinephrine production, 
and may therefore reduce depression in this way, as the two are closely related. Conversely, while there is significant evidence that sedentary behaviour leads to depression, and may potentially be responsible for an increase in depression rates amongst teenagers, it is also a reasonable argument that those suffering from depression simply fall into the routine of sedentary behaviour as a result of their poor mental health. So it's therefore really important to understand that while sedentary activity seems to be a factor leading to an increase in depression rates in teenagers, it's extremely difficult to differentiate between the cause and consequence in that situation. Let's now look at just how significant an issue, or the issue rather, of cyberbullying is among adolescents. While social media remains one of the most useful, engaging tools around, it also provides a very, very easy way for people to engage in bullying, in particular cyberbullying. It's a considerable issue in the world of social media, and it's perhaps one of the, the biggest dangers that social media presents us with. Cyberbullying itself is defined as the use of technology to harass, threaten, embarrass or target another person. When an adult is involved, it may meet the definition of cyber harassment or cyber stalking, a crime that can have legal consequences and involve jail time. So what are some of the motivations behind cyberbullying? Well, the anonymity provided by using a mobile phone to communicate negatively with someone else allows people to behave in ways that they usually wouldn't. Cyberbullies have no way of witnessing the pain they inflict through their mobile phone and it results in a total lack of empathy for the victim. The use of these online avatars or pictures if you like, it's like an online personality which adolescent bullies feel they are able to hide behind. It makes them feel less responsible for the consequences of that bullying. According to recent surveys, around 83% of young people feel that social media companies should do more to tackle cyberbullying on their platforms, as current methods of intervention are simply seen as just inadequate and ineffective. In a world where technological advances are occurring at breathtaking speeds, it's difficult to comprehend how the safety of the users has not advanced to the same extent. One policy which has been adopted by a range of social media platforms such as Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, YouTube and Instagram is to include a minimum age in order to have an account and currently that's set at 13. However, it has been found that about 61% of young people have had their first social media account set up at the age of 12 and in some cases even younger. This could potentially be a factor in the meteoric rise in Cyberbullying cases, as young people are vulnerable when using social media platforms such as Snapchat and Instagram, even more so if their parents are unaware of their account. Studies by Sloan and Smith rank cyberbullying as one of the most common forms of harassment among adolescents. Amanda Todd, a 15-year-old victim of cyberbullying from British Columbia became a household name all over the world following her untimely death at the hands of a man whom she had known for a while who was in possession of a private photo of her. He'd used this image as a means of harassing, tormenting and blackmailing her. This issue escalated and for Amanda, the single bully she had to deal with soon became numerous anonymous online bullies as well as many of her peers at school. 
Following Amanda's death, however, it's understood that in this particular instance, it was not the bullying itself which caused Amanda to unfortunately take her own life, but it was the mental health issues that she faced as a result of cyberbullying, which ultimately went untreated. Now, while this is a particular, particularly tragic story of such a young girl affected by the dangers of social media, suicide as a result of cyberbullying is not as rare of a consequence as many might think. Cyberbullying may even be, or may even pose a greater risk for suicidal thoughts in adolescents than more traditional types of bullying. Cyberbullying victims are thought to be around 1.9 times more likely to attempt suicide or die by suicide compared to those who have never been bullied. With 41 suicides over four countries, that's the USA, Canada, Australia and the UK, in the last eight years, taking place as a direct result of cyberbullying. There's clear evidence of this being a precursor to depression. Social media ultimately facilitates this act of intentionally causing harm to other users. So let's move to another question. Are depression rates really rising? Or does it just appear that way? That's the big question I'd like to address in this latter part of the podcast. While there is a plethora of evidence supporting the view that social media is harmful for one's mental health, social media remains an astoundingly useful and beneficial tool for many. Therefore, is the state of mental health of adolescents truly worse, or are we simply diagnosing disorders that were once unknown or not picked up on? Is social media actually aiding the improvement of mental health awareness? The answers aren't exactly simple. It is evident in the past that about half of those suffering from depression did not seek any form of professional treatment. As shown in a study carried out by the Integrated Management Care Consortium, Kaiser Permanente, they looked at demographic data, electronic health records and insurance records to estimate the number of people who were newly diagnosed with depression by primary care doctors from 2010 all the way to 2013. About 12 million people were included in that analysis. Of these, approximately 240,000 people were newly diagnosed with depression over the study period. And of these, less than 36% sought treatment of any kind within the next 90 days. It's quite common for people to be nervous or embarrassed about visiting a psychiatrist, but it shouldn't be. But, But it is. One key factor in understanding the reasons behind this figure I think it's the stigma surrounding the topic of mental health and depression, which often leaves people feeling humiliated and in denial that they're suffering, leading to refusal of any form of professional treatment. Those suffering from mental health problems are amongst the least likely of any group with a long-term health condition or disability to find work, to be in a steady long-term relationship, to live in decent housing or be socially included in mainstream society. This is a direct result of the public's view that those suffering from depression or other mental illnesses are, you could say, dangerous or potentially aggressive and violent. 
In reality, however, those suffering from mental illnesses are usually on the receiving end of aggressive behaviour, as they are particularly vulnerable, according to the Mental Health Foundation. Global statistics for mental health and depression in the past likely underestimated the number of cases across the world, as many of those suffering from depression remain either undiagnosed or and, and untreated. Now, in recent years, however, with the development of social media, people have started to speak more openly about mental health, especially those of the younger generations and adolescents without the underlying feeling of judgment as a result of stigma around the subject. And this has been achieved in a number of ways by a number of social media sites. Twitter, for example, claimed that methods of challenging mental health stigma include education, contact and protest. Education replaces stereotypes with accurate facts and figures, personal contact between members of a stigmatised group and others undermines prevailing stereotypes. Protest highlights injustice and rebukes, or rebooks rather, stigmatising attitudes. Interaction on Twitter about mental health features a dynamic blend of these approaches with personal narratives at the core. Similarly, Instagram launched a mental health campaign, hashtag here for you, which aims to remove the stigma surrounding mental health and allow people to tell their stories to the community to help themselves and others going through similar situations. The strong sense of social community created by social media sites counters the perception that it is harmful to one's mental health. Social support is a crucial part of recovering from depression and it can reverse prolonged feelings of isolation. It can give a person a new focus in life and it can motivate those suffering to change their habits in order to gain a positive outlook on life. Social support is thought of as having people in one's life who somebody can turn to for comfort, for reassurance and a sense of security while going through those difficult or challenging times. Often those with a lack of social support are those suffering from mental illnesses such as depression. There is sufficient research to generally support the theory that social support is either directly and positively related to psychological health or has a buffering effect that safeguards individuals from negative stresses. For sufferers, speaking to people about their emotions face-to-face -face is often very challenging and quite anxiety-provoking. Online groups and communities therefore provide an attractive alternative. Research into formal online support groups has found that participation in said groups is associated with decreases in depression and increases in quality of life. So perhaps there is a genuine rationale for thinking that social media is beneficial for those suffering from depression because of the abundance of support and help available for all. Social media really has given a platform to millions of people to share their memories thoughts, their feelings, their political views and so much more. It's allowed me to advertise this very podcast channel to you all. So we're not likely to abandon social media anytime soon. The crucial question though that we all need to be asking ourselves is whether we're using it in the most effective and safe way that we can be. On that note I'd like to say a big thank you to everyone for listening. Hopefully it's given you some food for thought.